I'm so glad you're with us today. I want to start with a quick update on our public worship services. Obviously, we cannot wait to worship together, sit together, sing together, learn together, serve together, have our kids all be together. Uh, but it's clear that time is not yet, and we wanted to let you know. We're all having to figure out how do we shelter in place. One part I've actually liked is for 35 years, I have thought it would be cool to have my wife Nancy cut my hair, and now she is. And I thought it would be really cool if I were to cut her hair, and now I'm not. She'll, that's never going to happen. Um, from a church perspective, we want to reopen public services when we can do them in a high-impact, very effective, very inspiring way. We want to serve families well. We know that little children are really bad at socially distancing. Uh, we don't want to risk being a source of infection. We want to honor the safety of our congregation and our community. So we're in conversations with churches around the country and here in the Bay Area, monitoring uh, government sources, and we'll keep you posted. I want to talk today about your becoming an agent of hope. And man, do we need this. We need this because of the pandemic. We need this because of economic uncertainty and joblessness. We need this because our nation is staggered by the video of an African-American man, George Floyd, being choked to death. I was praying for our country this morning. I will often pray by thinking back to Genesis when God breathes the breath of life into that first man. And I'll use that as I pray, God, give me your life. God, breathe your spirit into me. And I tried to think while I was praying, what was it like for George Floyd as he lay on that street with a knee on his neck and cried out, I can't breathe. And the breath of life that God breathed into Adam was cut off from his body. And I tried to think, to talk to God about what pain must have been in the heart of God as he sees one of his children lying in the street, but the breath of life is leaving his body. I thought about the pain in our nation, the pain of protests, uh, the agony of injustice, the pain that happens when protests get co-opted by looting, uh, families of law enforcement officers like my own nephew, of people who are anguished, of people who are silent. See, Christian hope is not glib optimism about having my individual wishes fulfilled. Christian hope is hope for everybody. Christian hope has its eyes wide open, so it also laments. It also protests injustice. It also acts, and man, do we need agents of hope. Long time ago when I was in grad school, I read a poem by William Cooper. It was written back in the 1700s. Cooper was a poet, and then he became a Christian and became an abolitionist. We'll come back to that. But this particular poem has a line that has stuck with me ever since. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. And what I like about that is the word surprise. Sometimes in the dark, hope comes. What I like about that is it says sometimes the light surprises a Christian when he sings. In other words, when he started singing, it was still dark. The singing itself was an act of hope. And then God blesses you 
by surprise for no reason. It's a funny thing. Anytime somebody sneezes or coughs, the standard response is, God bless you. Even atheists or skeptics may, God bless you without even thinking about it. I read an article online recently that said the practice may have begun in a pandemic centuries ago. Back then, it was the bubonic plague, which killed up to a third of the whole population in Europe. And one of the symptoms of catching the plague was sneezing or coughing. And it was Pope Gregory the Great who suggested saying, God bless you after somebody sneezes. Only it wasn't a cliche. It wasn't uh, autopilot comment. It was a prayer for deliverance from death. I read it online, so you may wonder if it was a credible source. It was actually from the website of the Library of Congress. So not a super credible source, not like Facebook or something, but still interesting. The idea behind blessing somebody is that just as we live in a physical ecosystem, we also live in a spiritual, personal ecosystem. Just as one person can infect another person with plague or illness or virus, we can infect people with courage or joy or hope. People can make people sick. We'll say that sometimes. You make me sick. People can make people well. God bless you. There is a basic truth about the human condition. It's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. What is in you will come out of you. That's true physically. Virus, measles, germs, bad breath. It's also true spiritually and emotionally. Emotion is incredibly contagious. In one study, a depressed person and a non-depressed person just sat down across from each other in a room for two minutes without saying a word. And afterward, the non-depressed person was significantly more depressed than they had been before without saying anything at all. We're all social distancing six feet to avoid COVID. There have been videos, you've probably seen them, about how a sneeze can travel 27 feet Sneezes actually move at 100 miles per hour. You cannot outrun a sneeze. How far do you have to socially distance not to have people drive you crazy? A Yale researcher named Nicholas Christakis studied the social networks of thousands of people. It turns out that uh, contagions, or what he calls social stampedes, run rampant through human relational networks. It turns out the tendency of human beings to influence and copy each other is immensely pervasive. Students with more studious roommates end up studying more. Diners sitting next to heavy eaters end up eating more food. People who live next door to neighbors that garden end up mowing their yards more often. And it's not just that our friends affect us. Our friends, friends, friends affect us. Your friend Ted has a friend at work named Ned who has a neighbor named Fred, and Fred's negativity depresses Ned, depresses Ted. You're having a bad day all because of some guy you will never even meet. This is called the three degrees of influence. And I kid you not, if the friend of a friend of a friend quits smoking or gains weight or gets depressed, you are more likely to do the same thing. So you got to tell your kids, not just be careful of your friends, or even just be careful of your friends' friends, be careful of your friends' friends' friends. Everything you think, feel, do, or say can and does spread far beyond even the people that you know. Social networks, researchers tell us, magnify what they are seeded with, which raises the question, what do you want to seed your little network with? What do you want to seed your little life with? Here's an idea that has yet to be topped. 
May the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we're all learning about hope and this particular verse is our central text. You in this verse is actually plural. If you're from the South, it's you all. Where I come from, it's you guys. In other words, the plan is for the church to be a social network of hope, a community of hope. Now, if you're going to be a hope bringer, if you're going to shed hope like a virus, you've got to be filled with hope because what is in you will come out of you. If negativity is in you, it'll come out. Despair is in you, it'll come out. Cynicism in you, that'll come out. And God's plan is for you not just to be full of hope, it's actually to overflow. To overflow means you don't have enough space to hold something. When our son Johnny was a tiny little guy one time, he begged Nancy to be allowed to fill his glass up with milk. Big carton, super heavy. She was reluctant. We all knew what would happen, but he was so persistent, she said, okay. He picked up that carton and tilted it, and the milk started pouring in the glass. We all knew where this was headed, but at the last second, he pulled back and didn't spill a drop. The glass was not only full, the milk actually crowned the top. We all cheered. Then Johnny whirled the glass from the table over to the counter, and and the milk sloshed everywhere and kind of spoiled the moment. But here's the picture. Paul says, have hope crown your life the way milk crowned that glass so that when you move, the hope just sloshes over everybody. But here's the key. Here's the key. If you're going to overflow with hope, you cannot depend on how your friend's friend's friend is doing. No. Here's the plan. May the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we don't do this on our own willpower. In other words, you are not passively dependent on people and circumstances around you. You have one who wants to fill you. May the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy. How will he do this? He will use scripture. He will use great thoughts from his word. He will use being with other people. He will use being alone. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. He will use beauty. He will use creation. He will use your worship. He will use whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. But it's all rooted in, it's all dependent on your understanding the title Paul gives him, the God of hope. That's our God. Now, we've seen in this series a truth about hope that most people in our day, in our culture, are not aware of. Dallas Willard put it like this. One of the remarkable changes brought by Jesus and his people into the ancient world concerned the elevation of hope into a primary virtue. Hope was not well regarded by the Greco-Roman world. It was thought of as a desperation measure. You might remember there's a Greek myth of Pandora's box. Zeus was ticked off at a man, Prometheus, for stealing fire from the gods. So to get revenge, Zeus creates this woman named Pandora, and she's given a box or a chest or a jar, which Zeus, being a master of reverse psychology, warned her never to open. Of course, she couldn't help herself. And out from that box flew every kind of plague, illness, hunger, envy, anger that would torment humankind. 
She rushed to put the lid back on and found the only item remaining inside was hope. Now, the Greek word for hope was elpis. If you've ever wondered where we get the phrase hope chest from, it was from this story. The Greeks actually had a number of different versions of this story. Sometimes hope got out of the box. Sometimes Pandora put the lid on to keep it in. Sometimes hope was thought to be a positive force that kept the people going. Sometimes it was thought to add more torment to life. But as a basic orientation to life, hope was thought to be an illusion because there was no realistic basis for it. So it was kind of a self-deception deal. They thought of hope almost exactly like a scene from a movie that none of you will have ever watched, and I am not recommending, called Dumb and Dumber. The character played by Jim Carrey is in love with a woman, but he's getting nowhere, so he finally asks her, what are my chances? She tells him, not good. You mean, not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. Long pause. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yes. His hope, we all know, is just nothing but delusion. And the ancient Greeks thought about hope basically that way. They believed that hope was really a failure to rely on reason. You understand, nobody ever called Zeus the god of hope. Nobody ever gave that title to Odin in Norse mythology, or Baal, or Molech. There is no god of hope in Eastern religions where desire is to be eliminated. This is not an accident. They believed that there was no rational grounds for hope. But Paul, drawing on the scriptures of Israel, and especially on Jesus, calls God the god of hope. You understand, Paul doesn't just make up titles like that to hear himself talk. This is a claim. It has content. It is an idea. It is an idea that's basically unprecedented in the ancient world. Hope, remember, is the anticipation of good. It involves imagination, desire, and belief. And the God of Israel imagined creation. He thought it up to begin with. And the God of Israel has great desires for his creation. He so loves his world, he wants it to flourish. And the God of creation believes that this will come to pass. In fact, he knows it will, for he will do it. And therefore, he is the God of hope. Hope is the anticipation of good. And nobody anticipates good more than God. Nobody anticipates more good than God. And therefore, God is the most hopeful being in all the universe. Raucous applause. I mentioned the Greek word for hope was the word elpis. In ancient Greek, it actually meant more like uh, expectation. You could expect something good to happen. Often they used it that way. But you can also expect something bad to happen, and sometimes they would use the word that way. I was talking to somebody at our church who was going through this series and said it made him realize, I don't hope much. Mostly I just keep my head down, blinders on, kind of grind through life. Well, that's what the Stoics did, fatalists, cynics, not Jesus, not Paul. They hoped. They sloshed it around. And Jesus' followers came along, and they had to write down his message, 
And they said, we're going to kidnap that little word LPs. We're going to put it on steroids. We're going to put it through weight training. That little word is going to change the world. And that's what happened. In the New Testament, that little word LPs is never used to expect the bad. Instead, it's used to name a virtue that was new to the ancient world, hope. It was so inspiring that now in our day, many secular folks, even people who do not believe there is any solid foundation in reality for it, cannot let go of that word. But Jesus and Paul say there is a foundation for hope. The God who made the world loves the world is going to redeem the world. And if that's true, then hope is not just pleasant. It's not just empowering. It's not just something that we enjoy. It's logical. It's reasonable. It's appropriate. It fits. Now, that doesn't mean that you are always optimistic about how a situation is going to turn out. A friend of mine said, I pray that God will stop the COVID virus, but I'm not really sure if that will happen, so I guess I don't have much faith or hope. No, no, no. Hope does not mean conjuring up a feeling of certainty about how some situation will turn out. We never know how any given situation will turn out. We don't even know how it should turn out. We're not God. We can't see eternity. Hope does not mean feeling certain you're going to get some particular answer to prayer. It means you bet the farm on God. You look to God, depend on God, remember God, thank God, serve God, think about God, worship God, study God, love God, rest in God. You arrange your life around the Jesus way. We studied that last fall. Surrender. Your will be done. And study. God, fill my mind. And prayer and service, and so on, so that you can be increasingly gripped by joy, a pervasive sense of well-being, and peace, the rest of will that comes when we are assured of ultimate outcomes. And then our goal, gang, is to become agents of hope in the lives of others. We want to build a social network of hope. We want to be infectious with hope. We want to shed it like a virus. This week, our transforming practice from the Way series is serving so that our hope increases the hope of other people who need it in this world of so much pain. Look what Paul writes Timothy. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Don't put your hope in wealth. In other words, there is such a thing as false hope. You go to bed rich and wake up and the stock market has dropped 30%. Tens of millions of people have lost their job. Like, if we don't learn to not put our hope in wealth now, when will we ever? But this is actually a time of extraordinary opportunity. Put your hope in God do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous with people. Be willing to share. Make every day an investment in God's, God's resurrection and redemption of the world project. And you will be blessed. 
But not just that. See, this is true for everybody. Our brains scan our environments constantly. We're always asking, what should I do next? And we're imitators. God has wired us that way. Which means you can model hope for people when you know it, and you model hope for people when you don't know it. You bless your friend and your friend's friend and your friend's friend's friend whom you will never meet. The plan is we infect each other with hope all the time. My friend Ron constantly sends emails of encouragement and notes of hope to people in his life, often at work, also with family. Sometimes they'll write back such a great letter that he sends me a copy. And I get so inspired, I think, I can do that. I can write a note to somebody in my life. And then they get inspired by hope. And a friend of a friend of a friend gets blessed by the hope of somebody they'll never meet. My friend Mark has an unbelievable mind. He has forgotten more great thoughts than I will ever think. And sometimes we'll talk or he'll write and he'll tell me what he's been reading. And I'll think, I could read that. I could think nobler thoughts. And sometimes I do that and pass them on to you. And you might tell a friend, here's what we're learning about in our church. And a friend of a friend of a friend gets blessed by the hope of somebody they never met. My friend Rick loves to mountain bike and he's in great shape. Got a family history of uh, heart conditions, lost his mom and his dad and lost a brother years ago. So he watches his diet. He, he loves the challenge of pushing himself and he tells me about it. And I think, I can do that. I know of people who experience joy so deeply that when I am with them, I cannot not experience joy because joy is contagious. They have submitted a brief clip of visual, audible joy. You watch this and I dare you not to experience joy while you watch. Think about this. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. One of the ways he does that is he just keeps sending babies. Uh, let's watch it one more time. <laughs> My wife Nancy has extraordinary love for people. I hear this from people all the time. They'll say stuff like, John, we met you years ago at some event, or we read some stuff you wrote, got to meet you and Nancy. It was fine meeting you, but your wife, man, what a vibrant, hope-filled, hilarious, challenging force of nature you married. I get that from people all the time. So stop telling me. We were talking to a couple recently, and one spouse had a painful back problem Nancy had been praying for, and then Nancy asked about, and that led to a much deeper conversation that was real raw and very courageous. We were standing on holy ground very unexpectedly all of a sudden. And if Nancy didn't carry around that kind of concern that gave them hope that their pain was worth sharing, we'd have never had that talk. And I think, I could do that. Not with her flair or, or force of nature power, but I can schedule a phone call. I can ask a question. I can say a prayer. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. This is not rocket science, gang. It's just the God of hope filling you to overflow. 
I have a friend back east, one of the most generous people I know, not just with resources, but time, energy. Every time I talk to him, he'll ask, what do you need? How can I help? For 30 years, he's changed my life and Nancy's life in ways I could never describe, never more so than this year, never. And I get so moved, I think, I can do that. Paul says, Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you understand? This is why the church exists, to unleash agents of God-given overflowing hope. There has been a strange myth during this season that the church is closed. The church ain't closed. The church has never been more open. The church has never needed a building to be the church, to do the church. We're the church right now, right here. I'll give you one example. We need hope bringing volunteers to help us with all of our online ministry. Kids, students need online group leaders that will love them and, and, and talk with them online, care for them. That could be you. We plan to launch a slew of six weeks online life groups at the end of June. People need to be connected. You could be leading one of those. Life groups are like ground zero for community and discipleship at Menlo. So I want to ask you, you, Think about this. Pray about this. Take one step towards an involvement. Just go to Menlo.Church Life Groups that God can use to change lives. And when in-person services do reopen, and they will, we're going to need a ton of fired up, spirit-empowered volunteers in worship and tech and hospitality and prayer and mission, love the next generation that are just sloshing hope around people. I hope you will be one of those sloshers. Many of you students have been agents of hope. In San Mateo, a bunch of you were involved in helping get 400 bags of groceries for 400 families experiencing need. There's a high school sophomore named Darius who decided that he wanted to help. There was a Zoom call. He didn't say a word, but he printed up a flyer asking for help and went around with a mask and gloves to all of his neighbors. He was worried people might be scared, might not want to help. Plus, he's Asian and has had some people actually say mean things to him because of his ethnicity. By the way, can we just say that Jesus started a community of hope that includes every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and we revel in getting to be a part of that? We revel getting to be a part of a community that is saying the sin of, of exclusion and, and racism, no place for that here. Well, he had hope. So one single sophomore ended up collecting 21 bags filled with groceries to help 21 families that need food. And I hear that and think, I can do something. So many of you have been doing so many things that a bank wrote to our church. They said they have heard about how you all have been seeking to give care to the community, care for families and students and elderly folks. They said they wanted to give us $2,500 for us to use to help the community. I have often heard of churches wanting to get money from banks. I've never heard of banks wanting to give money to churches. Another bank approached us and said that, again, because of inspiration at the stories of how you are giving care, they wanted to be the conduit for a grant to come to our church of $15,000 just so we could help people. Well, every one of us wants to be a part of more stories like that, to build more bridges, to extend more hope, to bless more people. God bless you. Now, you may think you don't have enough hope to qualify, but you'd be wrong. 
I mentioned that line I love. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. The man who wrote it, William Cooper, brilliant poet, lived in the 1700s, suffered horribly from depression. In his early 30s, he tried to kill himself not once but three times. He was placed in uh, St. Almond's Insane Asylum. And there, he met Jesus. And then he suffered from depression with Jesus. Church often has not known what to do with people like that. He became a good friend of another man named John Newton. John Newton had been a slave trader, came to Christ, was eventually uh, convicted with great pain of his past, and wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He invited Cooper to be part of a hymn writing project that resulted in over 300 hymns that have inspired people now for centuries. Cooper, who knew excruciating suffer personally, could not stand the suffering being inflicted by his country, England, on African kidnapped slaves. And he became a kind of poet laureate for abolition. One of his poems called The Negro's Complaint was so powerful that it was often quoted 200 years later by a pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. And so I thought on this weekend, with our nation in anguish over the pain of racism, I would read this poem to help us remember and think and repent and lament and pray together. Forced from home and all its pleasures, Africa's coast I left forlorn to increase a stranger's treasures or the raging billows born. Men from England bought and sold me, paid my price in paltry gold. But though slave, they have enrolled me. Mines are never to be sold. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but Blind, but now I see. Is there, as ye sometimes tell us, is there one who reigns on high? Has he bid you buy and sell us? Speaking from his throne, the sky. Ask him if your knotted scourges, matches, blood extorting screws are the means that duty urges agents of his will to use.
redeem our nation brutes no longer till some reason you shall find worthier of regard and stronger than the color of our kind slaves of gold whose sordid dealings tarnish all your boasted powers prove that you have human feelings ere you probably question ours this is the language of christian lament this is the cry of jesus heart and i think i wonder what would our country be like today if 250 years ago every white person who claimed the name Christian had heard God's voice in these words and had repented and had said, we will not do this evil thing. We will no longer kidnap and degrade and enslave a race of people because of the color of their skin. But we did not. And so the lid to Pandora's box was opened once more. And there was yet more evil waiting to get out. And we see it still in our cities and choking on our streets and poisonous in our hearts. And there is hope. This is not an optimistic moment, but it is a hopeful one. And the only hope that is worth having comes not from ignoring the pain or denying the pain or avoiding the pain or trying to make sure that my little life is safe and okay, but precisely from and in and through and with the pain. It is the hope of the cross. It is the hope where the love of God took on the pain of sin to save a wretch like me. And it was the pain of this suicidal man, Cooper, who met Jesus for crying out loud in an insane asylum. And then the pain of a shame-filled slave trader named John Newton that led to words that would move this man Martin Luther King Jr. and King in turn would speak words that would move the conscience of a nation. Nobody could have seen it coming but the friend of a friend of a friend touched history. And it is that way with Jesus because see all of us who follow him live in a great chain friend of a 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 friend that goes back to the friend of sinners. He's our friend. What a friend. And sometimes, as it was with him on a cross, it is the wrenching pain you think you cannot bear that will be the source of the greatest hope you will ever give. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. And oh God, how do we need healing in your wings in our country today, in our lives today? So I'm asking you, if you're watching this, you be an agent of hope. And let's start right now. 
Do you listen to the words of this very powerful song by asking God to bring healing to our world, our nation, our families, my life and your life in this moment when we need his healing so much. You be an agent of hope.